Well, good morning. You know, it's been said that Winston Churchill planned his own funeral. And as part of the funeral, he had a bugler play taps. You know anything about the song Taps? It's associated with the military. In fact, if you've ever been to a military funeral, you've probably heard Taps being played. It's a very somber, very sad tune that signifies the end of the day. But Churchill not only had a bugler play Taps, right after that bugler finished, he had another bugler play Reveille, another tune associated with the military. It's the great getting up in the morning song, right? Get up, get up, it's time to get up in the morning. The message was clear. Churchill wanted to send a message that said, while there is somberness and sadness on this day, there is also a great getting up in the morning. You know, so it is with us. Death is the enemy. And it is a somber and sad occasion. When we lose a loved one, when we attend the funeral of a loved one. But while Taps is finishing playing, there is that faint sound of reveille in the background. Building and building into a giant crescendo that rings in our ears. Because as children of God, Taps is not the only tune that we hear. It's not just the end of the day, but yet it's also a great getting up in the morning. You know, we have a lot of great things happening here at Oldham Lane. This is a wonderful time in the congregation of the Lord's Church that meets here. But of all the great things that we have happening, there are people dying. There are people suffering. Just open your bulletin and you'll find a long list of folks. Just look over the last two years or so and think about all the people that we have lost. While it is a great time in the life of this congregation, there is also sadness. But in the background, I can hear Reveille, can't you? I can hear it building. As much as it's sad and somber to lose our dear, precious loved ones, there's a great day coming. It's an exciting day for those who, who die in the Lord. The novelist Somerset Maugham wrote, Death is a very dull, dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatsoever to do with it. And we would love to heed that advice, wouldn't we? But unfortunately, we have no say in the matter. We all are born with an expiration date, and we don't know when it's going to come due, only that it will come due. In fact, death is no respecter of persons. Death does not leave any of us alone. Worldwide, there are approximately 56,600,000 deaths per year. That works out to be about 4.7 million per month, 155,000 per day, 6,500 per hour, or 1.8 deaths per second. In other words, death is an ever-present reality. George Bernard Shaw stated the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. But, you know, death is not a natural part of the life process, as many people try to tell you. It wasn't intended to be this way. It wasn't supposed to be this way. Death is absolutely the enemy. Because it leaves us to pick up the pieces of what's left. Even when our dear loved one who dies, dies in the Lord, it's great for them, not so great for us, right? 
People say, well, yeah, but Chris, Jesus overcame death. He triumphed over death, and that's true. But that won't be fully realized until he comes again. Those who die in the Lord today experience a triumph. That's true. They have a victory. But for those of us who are left behind, it can seem like death is winning. On this side of eternity, it can seem as though death does have the final say. But there is a silver lining in the clouds of despair. I stand before you this morning with a message of hope. Like we talked about last week, it gets better. This isn't all that there is. Aren't you glad that this life is going somewhere? That there is something better. That we can, we can hope in the Lord that if we live at the center of His will and that we follow faithfully, that we have a life beyond this one. Listen to what is written in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 10. When they came to the thre uh, threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. This, this phrase here, or this verse, or, is in the context of Joseph's father dying. So we have this funeral procession. And we see that the word atad here in Hebrew is the word for thorn bush. It relates back to Genesis chapter 3, where God declared that the earth would yield thorns as a result of man's sin. So here we have this funeral procession for Israel, Joseph's father. And it comes to this threshing floor, this thorn bush, which is a reminder of the curse of death stemming from man's sin. In other words, death is the enemy. It wasn't supposed to be this way. I want you to know that those of you who are grieving this morning, those of you who are having a difficult time getting through what you're going through, that there is hope. Of all the great things that we have going on here as a congregation, there are many individuals within this congregation that are struggling. Some of you are dealing with the loss of a loved one and you're very lonely. And you wonder if you can move on. Some of you are dealing with a diagnosis that is debilitating, you're taking treatments, and you, you wonder if you can keep fighting. And some of you are the caretaker for someone who's in a desperate situation. Your life now revolves around taking care of your loved one. In many ways, you lost them a long time ago. You're just waiting on the inevitable. I hope this series of lessons this morning and in the weeks to come will help us who are grieving to find hope. And I hope that this series will help those who help those who are grieving. So that we can see that silver lining in the cloud of despair. Let's start with what society's answer is to this problem. Let's start with an illustration. Little Johnny has a dog. And his dog is precious to him. It's his best friend. It sleeps at the foot of his bed. It follows him wherever he goes. He loves his pet dog. And one day his dog dies. And he is crying uncontrollably at the loss of his best friend. And his dad comes in and tries to console him and says, There, there, Johnny, we'll get you another dog. And in that statement, Johnny's father illustrated the first two steps in society's grief management plan. 
bury your feelings, stop crying, and replace your losses. Well, Johnny grows up, he's in high school, and he meets a girl. And he falls head over heels for her. He's in love. And one day she breaks up with him. And he's devastated. This is a pain that he's never felt before. And he's in his room, and he's crying, he's weeping, and his mom comes in, and she says, Johnny, please don't cry. There are plenty of fish in the sea. Again, illustrating society's grief management plan. Forget your feelings. Replace your losses. After some time, Johnny loses his grandfather. His grandfather was a huge influence in his life. He made a tremendous impact on him. And Johnny loved this man dearly, and when he's taken away from him, he's devastated. He doesn't know how to react. He's at school when he learns of the news, and his dad picks him up, takes him home, and Johnny sees his mother in her room weeping and sobbing bitterly. He wants to go in to console her, but his dad says, Johnny, just, just leave her alone. She just needs time to herself. Step three, grieve alone. Don't bother people. Let them be alone when they're sad. Some time goes on, and Johnny is still having a tough time getting over the death of his grandfather. He's got to confide in somebody, so he goes to his father, and he says, Dad, I, I, I'm having trouble with this. I don't know how to get past it. He said, I cry all the time, and Dad says, Johnny, time will heal all wounds, which is a bunch of garbage, you know it. But that's step four. If you're keeping track, bury your feelings, replace your losses, grieve alone, time will heal. And so what have we taught little Johnny? Well, don't buy into any relationships because you're just going to be disappointed in the end. You're never going to really have any lasting, firm relationships because if you buy in too much, you're just going to be let down and you're going to be hurt. This is society's grief management plan, and it is really very different than what the Bible portrays for us and how we should be dealing with grief. Until you have experienced grief on a profound level, you have no idea what someone is going through. There is not a one-size-fits-all formula. Some people grieve differently than others. I have a, a bowl of mints in my office that my kids steal from quite often. But, you know, we have somebody else here that eats the majority of those mints, and his name's Blake Dozier. He's our youth and family minister. He comes in, and he'll grab two or three and put them in his mouth and chew them up. He eats them. He doesn't suck on them. I find that very strange. But who am I to judge Blake, right? There are people that deal with grief in very different ways than you do. When my father-in-law passed away, my wife's oldest brother never shed a tear, to my knowledge. Was he hurt? Absolutely. Did it bother him? I, I'm sure it did. But he grieved differently than the rest of his family. Until you've experienced it on a profound level, it's not for you to judge how someone deals with grief or how they should experience grief. So reminding them that time will heal all wounds, to count your blessings or attempting to minimize their loss is not the proper strategy. And please, by all means, do not attempt to console the grieving individual by suggesting that, that this death is somehow God's will. That's ridiculous, folks. Have you heard statements like this? God needed him or, more, him or her more in heaven. 
It was just their time to go. God must have needed another angel. We do not worship a God who intentionally takes the lives of our loved ones. Stop saying that. We don't. We should never attribute the death of a loved one to a direct act of God. Why would God need a little child in heaven more than his parents? Why would God need a 35-year-old mother in heaven more than her family needs her? The best thing that we can say is, I'm sorry. I'm here for you. Let me know if you need anything. I'm praying for you. Of course, nothing takes the place of our presence. You know, visiting can be so important at a time when someone is grieving. Grieving individuals need to know that they're not forgotten after the funeral. But that's how it works in our culture, isn't it? You have the funeral that provides the closure, and now everybody can get on with their lives. Those of you who have experienced death on a very personal level, you know that's not true. While the funeral may provide you closure, you know that everything doesn't instantly get better once the casket is laid in the ground. There are weeks, months, perhaps even years of remembering birthdays and anniversaries and special occasions, that first Christmas without your loved one, that first holiday without them. It's difficult. It's heart-wrenching. People need to know that they're not forgotten once the funeral's over. We grieve in community, something we're going to talk about in the coming weeks. We are a community of bereavers. And it is our responsibility to help those who are wounded, who are lying on the side of the road in grief. Let's not assume that normalcy is restored after the funeral. And I don't believe that most people who are trying to comfort one who is grieving are trying to say the wrong thing. I don't believe that. I believe we feel like we've got to say something, don't we? We feel like we've got to come up with just the right thing to say to help the person who is hurting. I've seen family members try to take on the role of grief coach. Say things like, yeah, you got you to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. You got to go on. You got to get over this. Your family needs you. I've seen other people, even preachers, preach on with unbiblical blathering and pious pontifications about how you are to to be something more than this griever that you are, that you've got to get over this and move forward. And I want to say, please stop. You're not helping. I think you want to help, but you're not. Notice Job, chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came, each one of from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. When they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, they raised their voices and wept, and each of them tore his robe, and they threw dust over their heads toward the sky. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, with no one speaking a word to him, for they saw that his pain was very great. I think I got the scripture reference wrong, but you know what I'm getting at here. The three friends did exactly what they were supposed to do, didn't they? They did exactly what they were supposed to do. I mean, what a great friendship that they must have had with Job, that they would leave their job, they would leave their family, and they would come to their, their friend who was in need. This man had just lost everything. 
He had lost his wealth. He had lost his family. His wife bashes his faith. He's lost everything, and now he's sitting here in mourning and grieving, and his friends do exactly what they're supposed to do. They come, and they sit in silence with him, and they console him, probably putting their arm around him or at least trying to comfort him by their presence. Then what? They messed everything up, didn't they? They were great in the beginning, but then they opened their mouth, and it all fell apart. They tried to say that Job wouldn't be in this mess if it hadn't been for the sin in his life. Think about what they're accusing Job of. Remember, he's lost everything. He has no support at home. He's lost his family. He's lost his health. He's lost his wealth. And now his three friends are accusing him of indirectly killing his kids and losing his health and losing his wealth because he has done some sin that he needs to repent of. Obviously, these men need a little help on the comforting and consoling process, don't they? They were great in the beginning, but they fell apart when they tried to give some theological answer to what was happening. And we do that too much. We try to help people, and we try to grieve with them and sympathize with them, and we try to turn it into something theological when we should just say, I'm here for you. Or we just hug them. We give them a shoulder to cry on. We give them an ear to listen. We pray for them. We just need to be there and we need to listen. That's the best thing that we can do to help those who are grieving. Now, I say all that and I'm kind of bipolar in this because, you know what, it's my job to say the right thing. That's what I get paid to do. Is it's my job to be there with a family who has suffered loss from the moment that they experience that loss until the day of the funeral, it is my job to say the exact right thing to make it feel better. You know how hard that is? But here's something I've learned. No matter what I say, it's probably not going to make things instantly better. So my job is to point them back to God, back to God's Word, try to help them to understand that in the midst of all this, God is there, hope is there. But mainly, I think my job and my role is the same as every one of your roles. To just be there and to listen. To let them know that I care about them and that I want what's best for them, and so does God. And here's something else that I think is very important that I've learned, and I think we all need to take heed, and that is let people lament. It's okay. People who are grieving should be allowed to grieve. But we're uncomfortable with that. We don't like to see people hurting. And so what we do is we try to help them get over it as quick as possible. Hey, you got to suck it up. you got to go on. You know, this is life. I know it hurts, but you gotta, you got to rise above. No, let people cry. Let them weep. Let them lament. It's okay. Even people in our culture understand this. I can't tell you how many times I've sat with a grieving family and they say, I'm sorry, I keep crying. Because they know that's not how society works. You're not supposed to be crying. You're not supposed to be grieving. You're supposed to get over it and move on as quick as possible. Society's wrong. They've gotten this all wrong. You realize that the Bible teaches us that it's okay to lament? The Bible is very clear that grieving and mourning is a very natural process that all of us need to succumb to. Grief is normal. It is needed. It is natural. When Moses died, the Israelites mourned and wept for 30 days. 
When Joseph's father died, it was not unexpected, yet Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept, and then he observed 70 days of mourning, plus seven more days after the funeral procession arrived at the borders of Canaan. Remember in John chapter 11, when Jesus comes to the tomb of his, of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days? John chapter 11, verse 35 is often known as the answer to a trivia question, isn't it? What's the shortest verse in the Bible? Jesus wept, right? Actually, that's not true. You knew that, right? That's not the shortest verse in the Bible. If you're going by the original language, it's actually the third shortest. It also depends on what version of the Bible you're using, because like in the NIV, there's one shorter, so all that's irrelevant. John 11:35 was never intended to merely be an answer to a trivia question. John 11:35 shows us the humanness of Jesus. Here is a man who is also fully God, who is 100% deity, but 100% flesh and blood, and he stands at the tomb of his dead friend Lazarus, and he weeps. We see the flood of emotion come over Jesus as he sees what death does to people. Not just what it did to Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was going to die and that he would be dead when he got there. But he looked around him and he saw Lazarus' sisters, friends, crying and weeping bitterly. And it touched his heart. Our Lord experienced grief. He was on our level. He saw what death does to people, and it shook him to his core. That should give us some comfort to know that even our Lord is in tune to our emotions. That he shed tears, just like we shed tears. It's natural, it's normal, it's needed. Scripture states when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and he was troubled. He was troubled, it says. Why did he weep? Some say because he was going to have to raise him from the dead. Maybe that's a good, good reason. I think more than anything because he saw what death does to people. People that he loved. People that he was close to. He didn't go up to Mary and Martha and say, look, you're going to have to pick yourself up now. I know you're sad, but you're going to have to pick yourself up by the bootstraps and move on. Your family needs you. These people around you need you. They need to see you being strong. No, he sat with them. He let them weep because it's okay. It's natural. It's needed. God cares about our grief. When Jesus came to earth, he did so in a body like ours. John 1 and 14 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Being made flesh means that he was endowed with all the emotions, all the human experiences that we have in this life. In his brief time here on earth, Jesus was tired, he was hungry, he was thirsty. He sweated. He wept. He even asked why. Upon the cross, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Even Jesus asked why. It's a question that we ask in our personal grief. As the Son of God, Jesus knew that a perfect sinless sacrifice was the only way to alleviate and to atone for man's sin. Therefore, Christ would, would have to give his life. But the deity of Jesus seems to be in conflict with the humanity of Jesus on the cross. And he cries out, why? And he echoes the sentiments of mortal man throughout the centuries. Why? Why, God? In our grieving, we ask that question. 
And there are many uh, questions surrounding our suffering. Why is the biggest? But maybe we should be asking how. How do I get through this with God on my side? How do I get through this with the church on my side? Because like we talked about last week, I'm sure there are many of you here in this auditorium who have dealt with grief on a very profound level that could say, I don't know how I would have gotten through it without God and, and my fellow Christians on my side. I don't know how I would have made it. We need to release our grief. Someone once said that grieving is nature's way of healing a broken heart. It's okay to mourn. It's okay to weep. We need to let people lament. You don't have to always suck it up. It's okay to soak your pillow with tears. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to, to feel the burden of grief at times. You know what's not okay? It's to believe that this is the end of the story. That's not okay because the Bible does not present it that way. This is not the end of the story. The story does not read the end. It reads to be continued. There is more. As difficult, as heart-wrenching as this may be, there is more. Scripture indicates that mourning and grief are natural, but that there is more. Remember the wise Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3? said there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Sometimes it's okay to be weak. Sometimes it's okay to mourn. Sometimes it's okay to feel the burden of grief. But what's not okay is to believe that death is the end of the story. There is beauty in the ashes. Something we're going to talk about next week. In an Indiana cemetery, there is a tombstone that is over 100 years old. And on it is the inscription, Paul, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. Someone was passing by this tombstone and they actually scratched a response beneath this inscription. And it reads, To follow you, I'm not content till I know which way you went. Right? You know, you can visit any cemetery and you can't really tell the Christians from the non-Christians, right? I mean, you just walk into a cemetery. You can't really tell who was a non-believer and who was a Christian, right? I mean, people are buried side by side, six feet under the ground. And maybe you can look at their tombstone, and maybe you can see something written on the tombstone that maybe indicates or gives you a pretty good idea that they were a child of God. But otherwise, you really don't know. There are people in that cemetery that died with a priceless asset. Something more valuable than anything you could ever possess here on earth. You want to know what it is? You want to guess what it is? It's a little four-letter word that means everything. It's hope. It's hope. And if you have hope, you have something that is so priceless, that is so enormous, it could never have a value put upon it. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, 
that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Did you notice at the very beginning what Paul says and really what sets the tone for his entire message? We do not grieve like those who have no hope. And you know why? Because we grieve as children of God. And that makes all the difference. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we know that there are many here this morning that are hurting, that are grieving, that have experienced loss, that are dealing with debilitating illness, some that are caretakers, others who are just struggling mentally, emotionally. God, we pray that you wrap your arms around us, that you, you help us to recognize that there is peace in you, that there is hope in you, and that, that there isn't, this isn't all that there is. Help us as a community to let others lament, as a church family, that we can rally around one another. And thank you so much for the priceless asset of hope. May we cling to it. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. You know, there may be some this morning who are dealing with tremendous grief and you just need the prayers and support of this church family. I'm going to ask you if you come forward. Folks, let's not let anyone come forward and sit down here by themselves. If they're grieving, they need us, right? Come with them. Maybe you're grieving sin and you're ready to put on Christ in baptism. Or maybe you're grieving the fact that you were once a child of God and you're not living faithfully. I'm glad you're grieving those things. But get them fixed. Make things right with God. Whatever your need is this morning, we ask you to come forward as Clinton leads us in song.